0: For that awesome demonstration, it reminds me of what my daughter likes to say. That's that teamwork makes the dream dream work. That's right. Teamwork makes the dream work. That might have been a good title for this message. But I wanted to use this word cooperation. I want us to think about cooperation. And what a fitting Sunday that we all had to cooperate together and bring chairs in here from the fellowship hall, right? We had to work together to even be in here uh, to worship today. Let's think about this word cooperate. Okay, What does that word mean? If you break it down into two parts, cooperate, it means to work together. Work together. Cooperate. The Bible has something to say about that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up, And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The Bible talks about cooperation. The Bible gives us numerous examples of cooperation, of, of God's people working together to accomplish God's purposes. I think of Nehemiah helping the Israelites rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem. Or I think of all those artisans and craftsmen that work together to construct the tabernacle and later the temple and all the articles For worship. We can think of all the battles the Israelites had to work together to overcome. They had to walk and march together and blow horns together around the walls of Jericho to make it fall down. The Exodus itself, an amazing feat of cooperation. Although they didn't always cooperate together well, did they, or get along? Sometimes they struggled through that. And then the early church, the New Testament church, is a great example of cooperation. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People saw this cooperation, this teamwork, and the way these people loved each other and cared for each other. And they said, I want to learn more about that. So let's look at the Baptist faith and message has to say to us today about cooperation. And you may think it's kind of strange that cooperation is a doctrine. You know, up there with like the deity of Christ and the the sufficiency of Scripture and salvation by grace. Why is cooperation in there? Well, let's look at it together. Christ's people should, as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions as may best secure cooperation for great objects of the kingdom of God. Such organizations have no authority over one another or over the churches. They are voluntary and advisory bodies designed to elicit, combine, and direct the energies of our people in the most effective manner. Members of New Testament churches should cooperate with one another in carrying forward the missionary, educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony... And voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. Cooperation is desirable when the various Christian denominations, between the various Christian denominations, when the end to be attained is itself justified, and when such cooperation involves no violation of conscience or compromise of loyalty to Christ and His Word as revealed in the New Testament. Now, our society looks at things like cooperation, tolerance, diversity, inclusion, and they love those as great values, right? But what do those words mean? Cooperation, inclusity, inclusivity, diversity, inclusion, uh, tolerance. What do these words even mean? You know, these are not ultimate values. In other words, they're conditional values because people can be united around some pretty terrible things, can't they? People can cooperate together to, a, to do some of the worst atrocities in history, can't they? Tolerance is not a virtue by itself because it all depends on what you're tolerating, right? There's a lot of things we can tolerate that we would say is not good. Well, the same is true of cooperation. We need to ask some qualifying questions, and we're going to look at three of them today. And you've only got two fill-in-the-blanks in your notes today because we have no screen. I wanted to keep it simple, just two fill-in-the-blanks, right? So we're going to look at these three questions. And the first question is what I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on. Okay, So the majority we're going to look at today is this first question because it's such a crucial question today. With whom do we cooperate? Now you may say, well, David, shouldn't all Christians and churches and denominations work together? I mean, can't we all just get along? Don't we all love Jesus? Don't we all want to see His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it depends. We're living today in a day of religious pluralism, unseen, I think, since the first century Christians. Let's go back, for example, to this idea of tolerance, diversity, and inclusion. These are sort of the the trifecta of postmodern values, aren't they? You hear them all the time. Postmodernism believes that every truth claim is equally valid, except for the Christian truth claim that there is absolute truth and all truth is God's truth, right? So they reject that truth claim, but every other truth claim is equally valid. And that's the rub. Because as New Testament Christians, we believe there is absolute truth. We believe that all truth is God's truth, and we believe that doctrine matters. And because of that, sometimes we have to stand apart from those who call themselves Christian, who call themselves churches, because they don't believe those things. And when we do that, they accuse us of being narrow-minded. They accuse us of being intolerant. Well, if we truly believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it is sufficient for life and for faith and for ministry, that it's authoritative for our lives, if we really believe that, then we are bound not by what seems right to us or what the world may call tolerant. We are bound by what God's Word says. And God's Word has a lot to say about unity and about who we are to cooperate with and who we are not to cooperate with. And that applies both to us as individuals and to us as a church body. So the first fill-in-the-blank, the first part of the answer with whom do we cooperate is that we cooperate with fellow Christians. We cooperate with fellow Christians. The Baptist Faith and Message talks about voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of who? Christ's people. Now that's not to say that we aren't to have relationships with non-Christians. I mean, Jesus ate with sinners, right? Yes, he did. And, and, and but, but but did Jesus cooperate with them? Jesus ate with them. Jesus got to know them. But G- did Jesus cooperate with them? Did Jesus work together with them for God's purposes? No. In fact, the relationship that Jesus had with lost sinners was very simple. He came to seek and to save them, right? He came to call them to repentance. That was Jesus' relationship with the lost. And it applies to us. Our close relationship with any lost person should chiefly be about helping lead them to faith in Jesus. That's why we have relationships with lost people. Throughout the Old Testament, God clearly and repeatedly warned the people of Israel not to align themselves with the pagan nations around them. And we see the first example of that, or one of the greatest examples of that, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, beginning in verse 12. God tells the people of Israel, be careful not to make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land that you're going to enter, otherwise they will become a snare among you. Instead... You must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars and chop down their Asherah poles because the Lord is jealous for His reputation and you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. Do not make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land or else when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices." then you will take some of their daughters as brides for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. God has always warned His people to be careful about how much and how closely we associate with those who are far from Him. I used to do this illustration with teenagers back in the day when I was a youth pastor. I would have a chair and I would stand up in that chair. Some of you may remember this. I'd stand up in the chair, and I'd have one of the kids come up to me and grab my hand. I'd say, now, now, uh, or I'm sorry, they would stand in the chair. I would stand on the ground, and I would hand my hand to them, and, they, and I would say, now, pull me up there with you. So they would stand up there on that chair and try to pull me up on the chair. You think they did it? No. And then I would give a good hard yank, and down they'd come. I mean, not too hard. Nobody got injured. <laughs> But the point is, it's so much easier for someone to pull you down to their level than it is for you to pull them up to yours, right? We know this. We heard in our Old Testament reading, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Proverbs four fourteen and 15 says, Keep off the path of the wicked. Don't proceed on the way of evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass it by. That's pretty strong and clear language. And as you read the Old Testament, you discover that the vast majority of Israel's problems is they didn't do what God said here in Exodus 34. They did enter into treaties with the inhabitants of the land, they did associate with them and partner with them. And yes, their sons and daughters did prostitute themselves with pagan gods, they adopted pagan values and beliefs and practices and worshiped idols. The New Testament continues this warning against being in close relationship with those who don't belong to God. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? This applies to friendships, to business relationships, to who you date and who you marry. Any intimate relationship in our life. Remember, we are called to be salt and light in the earth. We are to go into a lost world to shine the light of Jesus, not to hide it under a basket for the sake of a business deal or because we don't want to offend a friend. Now, again, we should have relationships with lost people. We should befriend them so we can share Christ with them, so we can minister to them in Jesus' name in the prayer and hope that they come to faith in Christ. But our closest relationships, the people we confide in, the people whose advice we seek, the people that we lean on, should be fellow Christians committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the truth of His Word that brings us to the second part of this statement. With whom do we cooperate? We cooperate with fellow Christians under the authority of God's Word. Now, if there was ever a church that struggled with this idea of cooperation, it was the church at Corinth. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now, there are two principles that Paul points out to us here. The first... Is that while we are not to have deep, close, intimate relationships with lost people such that they would lead us astray, such that they would cause us to fall away in our walk with Christ, such that they would distract us by the things of this world from the things of Christ, we're not to do that, but we are to have relationships with lost people. Paul says that. He says, Hey, I wasn't, you be in the world, not of the world. He said, I'm not telling you to build a Christian bubble around yourself and not associate with lost people at all. So that's the first principle. Yes, we do seek to get to know lost people so we can share Christ with them. Otherwise, we would have to leave the world. But the second principle is the most surprising one. Paul says that we shouldn't even associate, and now that's the level of relationship that Paul says we should have with the drunk, swindling idolaters. We should associate with them. I mean, we should, we should have a friendship. We should know them. They should know us. We should be able to interact with them, to, to be able to share Christ with them. He says we shouldn't even have that basic level of association with anybody who claims to be a Christian but acts like an abusive, drunk, swiddling idolater. He says don't even eat with such a person. Now, Jesus ate with lost sinners, right? And we should too. But Paul says don't even eat with somebody who claims to be a Christian but lives like a lost sinner. We cooperate with fellow Christians under the authority of God's Word. Does their lifestyle match up what they claim? Or are they causing harm to the reputation of Christ? Are they causing harm to the body of Christ? Are they going to drag you down because you think, oh, they're a fellow believer but they're living like the world. But secondly, Paul doesn't just limit this to their behavior. When he writes to Timothy, he also talks about their belief. In 1 Timothy 6.3, Paul tells Timothy to flee from anyone who teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness. So not just those who are out there behaving and living like the lost, but those who believe and are teaching things contrary to the Word of God, Paul says flee from them. Second John 9-11 through 11 clearly directs us to avoid those who claim to be Christians but don't hold the sound doctrine. Uh, John writes, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it, in other words, they're trying to add to Scripture, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your home and do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. It's pretty, sounds kind of extreme. This is why our church is very particular about the people, the churches, the organizations that we partner with in missions and ministry. They must share with us a common commitment to the gospel, the same convictions about doctrine and biblical values. Now, it's easy to look back in church history and identify heresy, isn't it? It's easy to look back in church history and identify false doctrines. know, those who deny the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, those who denied the Trinity, those who were trying to teach a works-based salvation or who denied the inerrancy and, and inspiration of God's Word, or, or especially even today, those who teach heretical cultic things like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's kind of easy to identify that. There's a lot of false teaching and heresy among Christians and churches today that's hard to identify. They're insidious. They weave their way into things. And it may be people watering down the Bible with half-truths and political correctness. Or it may be those trying to build ministry empires on feel-good messages that you can have your best life now if you just name it and claim it and buy their book. Those, hard, those false teachings can sometimes be harder to see. I talked about this last week, that we have, to, we have to work hard to dig down deep to bedrock truth and build our lives on that truth and, and that will help us to discern the false prophets and the wolves in sheep's clothing out there. And when we do, when we see those people, we should correct them, rebuke them. And if they don't repent, if they don't change their beliefs and their ways, we disassociate from them. Today's false teachings include a lot of things that you might not even think about at first as doctrine or as teaching, but they are. They're worldviews. Matt asked us this morning in Sunday school, "What's, what's something going on in the world today that weighs heavy on your mind? Well, one of the things for me is a false doctrine that is infiltrating churches and denominations and colleges and seminaries, and it may even be infiltrating your mind. You don't even realize it because it's everywhere, and it's this... Critical race theory. You've heard it. It's a buzzword, CRT, critical race theory. It's all over the news. Wokeness, right? I mean, these are buzzwords that we hear, but we don't necessarily think about what they mean and what the implication is. I want to use this just as an illustration of an example of a false teaching that we've got to be wary of. And and really, wokeness is a Christian heresy. I read an article from Chuck Colson's ministry from um, Breakpoint.org about how wokeness is a Christian heresy. And I thought, well, that's weird. I wouldn't think of it as a Christian heresy. So I read the article. And it explains how the word heresy comes from the Greek word heron, which means to choose. And the article goes on to say that, quote, heresy is the result of choosing one thing that is true and then running with it until it distorts everything else. So you think about a heresy. Like the heresy that, that you know, denied the deity of Christ. It would take a truth about Jesus, like his humanity, and it would run with it to the exclusion of everything else and distort doctrine. That's what heresy does. Heresy always has a truth or a half-truth in it. It's like when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. What did Satan use to tempt Jesus? Scripture. So what Satan does, he takes something that's true and he twists it. And he uses it to pervert everything else. So the article goes on to say, Wokeness is a way of seeing the world built on critical theory. But he says it's fastened onto the Christian idea that oppression is evil. We can agree with that. Oppression is evil. But that, it makes that the sole significant fact about humanity and society while rejecting so much else that Christianity teaches, like original sin and forgiveness and salvation. So this CRT is a great example for us of a modern-day heresy that masquerades as a Christian virtue, as compassion, as justice. And the article explains this heresy, and I think it's illustrative of how we can discern and address multiple heresies in our culture today. Uh, the, the gender theory ideology that is that is everywhere as well. And the, the teachings about homosexuality or abortion, there's so many issues. Human life, the dignity and sanctity of human life, and ethics, and medical ethics, and those sorts of things. How can we address those? How can we see the heresy in those and guard ourselves against that and those that teach it? So I just want to, real quick, from this article, he points out three three things, three fallacies. First, he says, critical theory misunderstands who we are by assuming that the only relevant fact about us is where we fit within the various categories of oppression. So it misaligns the doctrine of humanity of who we are. Secondly, he says it it misunderstands the doctrine of sin or what's wrong with the human condition. He says, according to CRT, it's limited to oppression. In this view, oppressors are guilty, the oppressed are innocent, human identity, human nature, and human problems are all flattened out into a single spectrum of oppression. Third, he said, given its failure to diagnose sin, it's no surprise that critical theories lack an adequate understanding of salvation. The guilt of certain groups and the moral superiority of other groups is fixed and perpetual. Forgiveness and reconciliation are effectively ruled out. There's no path for healing, no bearing one another's burdens, no easing the burden of pain by forgiving another. And then he summarizes it and he says, In the end, wokeness is built on a worldview without salvation and offers an eschatology without real hope. Though the proclaimed goal is to end oppression, It's what the late sociologist Philip Reeve called a death work. It's dedicated to tearing down things, but unable to build or offer anything better. Now, I share this with you because these kinds of heresies are so insidious. They are weaving their way into churches and denominations and into pulpits, into Christian colleges and seminaries. Satan is crafty. He's very good at what he does. And that's why it's so important for us to understand and study what we believe and why. To sit under the teaching of sound doctrine and to be careful who we cooperate with. A couple more examples. Union Theological Seminary in upstate New York is not a Baptist seminary. Let me make that clear. They had a chapel service a couple of years ago where they filled the... the, podium, the pulpit area, with plants and trees. And they had a whole service where they prayed to and confessed their environmental sins to plants. There are those who teach either directly or indirectly universalism. That in the end, everybody's going to be saved and go to heaven. They deny the reality of hell. They deny uh, the, the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our sins. They deny the exclusivity of Christ, that He's the only way to God the Father. There are those who teach that Jesus was a sinner. There's a pastor, a liberal pastor, who's who's very popular on TikTok. And he was on TikTok uh, recently and talked about how Jesus was a racist. And at one point in the Gospels, he says Jesus confessed and repented of the sin of racism. In another video, the same pastor talked about that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was actually modeling for us how we should help homosexuals come out of the closet and embrace their lifestyle. As Christians, we cannot join in kingdom activities with those who don't believe the basic truths of God's Word. Who are going to read their desires and beliefs into God's Word instead of God's truth out of it. Because, what would we do together with those people? How can we do evangelism together with people who don't believe there's a hell? Who think that everybody's going to heaven no matter what? Who don't believe in the exclusivity of Christ? How do we do evangelism with them? How can we build churches with those who don't see the kingdom of God through the lens of Scripture? How can we support seminaries who pray to plants (laughs) or deny that God created us in His image as male and female? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Don't assume I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. The gospel has always divided people. We're in a spiritual war with the powers of darkness in this world and people are going to reject us because we belong to Jesus. They're going to reject us because we stand on the truth of God's Word. Now, does that give us an excuse to be mean for Jesus? To be holier than thou with other people? No. We always should speak the truth in love, motivated by love, in a spirit of love. We are to serve anyone and everyone that has a need in the name of Jesus. We're to share the gospel with and pray for the lost. But we should also be prudent in who, why, and how we cooperate with other people. Those are not mutually exclusive. So with whom do we cooperate? With fellow Christians under the authority of God's Word. The second question, why do we cooperate? Well, the Baptist Faith and Message says that we cooperate to forward the missionary, educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. In other words, we don't just cooperate for cooperation's sake. Again, that's not an ultimate value. It's conditional. We cooperate together for God's kingdom purposes. We agree to work together with like-minded believers to extend the kingdom of God through relief ministries, through education, through church planting, through evangelizing the lost. We cooperate with others to do this because we can reach so many more people in so many more ways together than we ever could alone, right? We really are better together as the body of Christ. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul describes the unity of the church in the context of shared belief, shared identity and purpose. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, Paul goes on to describe how this fleshes itself out in the ministry of the church. He says that God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints For the work of the ministry, he says, to build up the body of Christ and to help, he says, all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And he says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. So you see, the unity that we have The pastors and the teachers and the deacons and the leaders that we have, the work of the ministry we share together is to build up the church and help believers mature in Christ so that we're not deceived. So that we're not blown around by every wind of teaching that's out there so that we can stand on that bedrock of truth when the wind and the waves come. And Paul says all of this should be done by speaking the truth in love. So, why do we cooperate? We cooperate to spread the gospel, to further the kingdom, to build up the church in unity on the Word of God so we can withstand the storms of false doctrine and temptation and trials in our life. That's why we cooperate together. But Paul, here, when he talks about speaking the truth in love, leads us into the final question How do we cooperate? Well, spiritually speaking, we cooperate in the oneness of the Spirit, in the truth of the Gospel, in Christ-like love, and in our shared calling. That one faith, one Lord, one baptism. That's how we cooperate. In practical terms, what does that look like? Well, for us, it means that we voluntarily cooperate on the local, state, and national level to carry out God's call to make disciples of all nations. We as Southern Baptists believe in what's called the congregational form of governance. In other words, you might hear that called the autonomy of the local church. In other words, we believe that we as the body of Christ here at First Baptist Church on the corner of Jackson Street here, we, we believe that we are answerable directly to God, not to any man-made hierarchy. There's no other entity that we answer to but God Himself. Okay, That's very different from some denominations. We voluntarily associate with like-minded Baptist churches locally in what's called the Kilpatrick Baptist Association. That's a voluntary association that we're a part of. We voluntarily associate with like-minded Baptist churches across the state of Georgia through the Georgia Baptist Mission Board and nationally through the Southern Baptist Convention. Technically, the SBC is not a denomination. It's a convention of like-minded churches. First Baptist Church answers to God. Not to the SBC, not to the Georgia Baptists, not to the Kilpatrick Association. In fact, the way that we're set up, those entities can't tell a local church what to do, who to call as their pastor, how to do ministry, even what to believe. Rather, under the guidance of the Spirit, according to the Word of God, we send messengers to those entities. It's the local churches who direct them in what they do. It's a grass-up kind of structure, not a top-down sort of structure. And so we are a part of that, a voluntary association of like-minded Baptist churches working together to carry out the Great Commission. We practice this gospel cooperation in a lot of ways. One way we do that, every week when we give, 3.5% of every dollar you give goes to what's called the cooperative program. I wish that percent were a lot more, and we're working on it, we're getting there. Right now, 3.5% of every. Now, last year we gave out of the overage of God's blessing so that our effective giving last year was actually 10%. And I was very thrilled about that. We were able to really give a lot last year of the cooperative program. But that's the vehicle by which the nearly 3,600 Georgia Baptist churches and 48,000 Southern Baptist churches pull their resources together to carry out the Great Commission, to share the gospel around the world through, through missions, through education, through ministries, And through the CP and through our special offerings for Annie and Lottie and the Georgia State Missions Offering, even through the Go and Tell Fund, we are able to help support thousands of missionaries to reach our neighbors and the nations for Christ, to provide relief to those who are experiencing disaster or to help mothers who are raising their children on their own, to support crisis pregnancy centers, to feed the hungry, to, to minister in so many different ways. Through that, we support three Georgia Baptist colleges, we support campus ministries on most major college in the state, and we support six Southern Baptist seminaries who don't pray to plants, by the way. Now, we also cooperate with other organizations that aren't explicitly Baptist, through like HOI in Honduras, or through Smoking Mountain Resort Ministries in Gatlinburg. We partner with Samaritan's Purse and MANA right here in our own community. And we even partner with, in a limited basis, and support the work that, Non-Christian entities do. It may be a government agency. We work with DFACs, for example, to help uh, give Christmas gifts to all the foster care kids in our community. Uh, we partner with other local agencies and organizations that may not be explicitly Christian, but there are Christians there working through those agencies to help meet people's needs in Jesus' name. And so we do give and support and work with those people to help better our community, to help feed the hungry, to help children in crisis, to help abusive women escape uh, those abusive situations. We, we do those things on a limited basis, but we always make sure that they line up with our with our biblical Christian values and beliefs. The Word of God is clear. We're to love the truth, love one another, and love the lost so much that we work together to reach them for Christ. My question for you this morning is, what do your relationships look like? Who are you close to? And how are they impacting and influencing your life? Are they drawing you closer to Jesus? Or are they pulling you further away? Are they encouraging you in the work of God's kingdom? Or are they pulling you toward the things of the world? What about your personal associations? As we approach this Lord's Supper table this morning, the relationship I want you to most consider is your relationship with Jesus. You really can't partake of the elements of this table if you've not already partaken of the grace of God provided to you through what this table represents. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you know that? Have you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is He the Lord and Savior of your life? If he's not here in just a moment, I invite you to come this morning. You can begin a relationship with God through Jesus. And it's simple you admit to him that you're a sinner, you admit that you need his grace and forgiveness, and you trust in his atoning work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that today if you've never done that before? Paul also tells us not to partake of this table if we're in a broken relationship with fellow believers. Who do you need to forgive this morning? Who do you need to go to and ask for forgiveness this morning? Make sure that you don't come to this table with bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, but that you're seeking to right those broken relationships. And finally, this table really represents unity and cooperation. We're going to serve this bread and and, and these cups to one another. We're going to pass those plates to each other, serve one another. It's going to take all of us cooperating together to distribute these elements. So as we do that, let's reflect on what it means for us to be the body of Christ. Called to come together. Yes, we have differences of thoughts and opinions and different perspectives and backgrounds, but we come together united on our common convictions about the Word of God and about Jesus Christ. And we work together to share that with the lost. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is true. We're thankful, Lord, that... Though we live in a world that, as we talked about in in Sunday School this morning, a world that is against us, a world that is dark, a world that is lost, You are the light within us that we carry out there in love and in truth. Father, give us strength. Give us the strength of our convictions. Give us the strength of Your Holy Spirit at work in us, the truth of Your Word, to go and to live in this world consistently, for you, with love, showing people the true way. And God, as we have relationships with the lost, I pray that you would burden us increasingly for them and and that you would help us to have the kind of relationship with them that would elevate Jesus and would draw them in faith to Him. God, as we associate together and work together, God, help us to bear with one another and forgive one another and to work together for the common cause of the Great Commission. And help us, God, to have the wisdom and the discernment to see those who would want to to usurp, and to uh, take for themselves uh, the truths of the gospel to twist and to use for their own power, for their own political purposes, for their own pleasure. God, help us to beware of those. And help us, God, to hold fast to your truth. God, may your Spirit move and speak and work among us, and may we respond as your Spirit leads. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.